Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. On the other line, fresh back from LA and in town to buy himself a new geek, it's uh, Josh Martin. Welcome back, Josh. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Excited to be here to talk about uh, two of the holiday season's more more interesting films, and we've got a lot of them this year, So, but happy to be here. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, so we should. I should probably do a public service announcement. We're not talking Spider Man this week. I, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of replies. I, I to haven't this. even seen it. I the decision has been made on my part that we're going to wait and talk about Spider Man on this show after the Christmas holidays. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Matrix just to kind of, you know, leave room for all of the listeners to. To see Uh, them, and then you can spoil the hell out of them. Right. We don't have to do the (laughs) dumb caveat on this show of, like, if I say Dr. Octopus is in the new Spider-Man movie, some person's like, whoa! No way. Yeah. Um, But we are going to talk about two uh, new holiday releases from kind of two big auteur filmmakers. We're going to be talking about Guillermo del Toro's new movie, Nightmare Alley, and paul thomas anderson's new movie licorice pizza but to kind of segue back to spider-man because i think it's 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 notable i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on um you know the numbers came out yeah earlier this week uh second biggest opening weekend of all time which is extra crazy considering we're still like kind of in a pandemic and omicron is like you know some like weird star wars creature like popping its head up out of the corner of the frame well um yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to get your thoughts on this because I'm a little like both. I understand the the sort of frustration people have over this in in the sense that that is was like an insanely uh, successful movie that it sounds like everyone in America pretty much went and saw. But unlike, say, I remember the Christmas that Avatar came out, and of yeah. like that kind of like box office sort of trickled down to all the other movies around it because you had people that were like hey we we went to the movies to go see avatar and we saw a preview for this let's go see that or yeah. like, or it was avatar was sold out right, and i had so to go see or star home. wars star wars was sold out and i had to go see daddy's home with yes, will ferrell perfect example, instead perfect yeah. example. yes yes and and so like that isn't happening with no. the other movies that are around this christmas season but also, like, for how rough movie theaters have had it, like, I don't know. I'm kind of happy that, like, they at least... Yeah, oh, look, I, I don't mind. I'll say there's there's a lot of factors that have changed that in particular. I'll say, for one, um, I don't think... This is something that gets talked about, but it goes under the radar a little bit of, like, um, the changes in the reserved seating game since mm. 2009, since 2015, the fact that movie going is now less of a spontaneous activity of, oh, let's get the family together and just go down to the theater and see whatever the hell everyone decides on in the lobby and more of something that is sort of rigorously planned, purchased, bought in advance, like it's a sporting event, which, and from what I've understand, so like you, you mentioned the pandemic, I've been, you know, in LA in a sort of heavily vaccinated bubble at uh, University of Southern California. Uh, so I've been at movies for months. Um, Typically, though, if I'm going out like to see one, I, you know, I, I don't still don't want to be around a massive crowd right now just because it's like, who knows? Right. Um, and I've been try- trying to find a Spider-Man showing that's not 
you know, almost sold out. And at least here in Charlotte, the movie is doing gangbusters. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible for movie theaters and it's a good thing for them. But, you know, that, that transformation of cinema going into, uh, you know, theme park attractions, which, you know, Martin Scorsese famously said, which, Marty, come know, on, we're, we're this which, is your cue, <laughs> which set the, this, the, the, the fanboys off a little bit. Um, that's really what it seems like is happening. And based on what I'm seeing of the reactions to Spider-Man, um, and I don't mean the reactions in the sense of the critical discourse around it, but the actual in-theater reactions where there's mm-hmm. videos of people screaming and shouting and clapping and cheering, that it's it's a sort of it's a sporting event now. It's not really uh, you know, it's not really cinema going, which has always been the appeal of the Marvel films, uh, whether it's Endgame, whether it's all of that. Um, I'll be very interested to see what the second weekend numbers are. Uh, it's been holding steady all week. Mm-hmm. Um, if the second weekend numbers are still really high, then we can't just because a couple people last weekend were like, well, folks are just trying to get out ahead of the spoilers. You know, they don't want to know, you know, uh, if people are in it who we know are in it, but we can't say are in it because they didn't put it in the trailers. Um, and it's like, you know, they're trying to get out ahead of that. I don't know if that's the case. I'm still seeing sold out crowds yeah. this weekend. I think it's just I, I it, went on like a, a week, a week night yeah. here in Atlanta just because I figured like, OK, the weekend's going to be crazy. Yeah. And it was still like on a Tuesday. It was sold out like yeah. six o'clock on a Tuesday night. It was sold out by the yeah. theater near me. So I, I agree with you. I don't think it's I think this is going to be the big Christmas season. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I think Matrix will do well, but Matrix is also on HBO Max. And I think that's going to that's going to hit it a little bit, because I do think that I think if you give the option to folks to stay home and watch something right now, they will take it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Matrix will still do okay, probably better than most of the HBO Max movies this year. Um, But it'll be divisive. We were talking before we logged on about the sort of differences in nostalgia uh, in those two films um at least what i know of what i know and understand of spider-man like i said i have not seen it yet i am looking forward to it though um i have been skeptical of the tom holland spider-man movies but i have a fondness for the franchise as a whole so but um but yeah i mean and that is the 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 big concern i'll say as well is something's worth noting is the um you mentioned the sort of you know people going oh well let's go see this after we saw this and um you know the like where you were seeing reports last weekend of like you know nightmare alley screenings which i guess is a good segue into our our first film here being sort of just straight up canceled from more spider-man of like there were 10 people in the nightmare alley audience and they went uh we want to make room for another spider-man screening that we can totally sell out so uh uh we'll give you a refund and you can come back another time like that's crazy that did not used to happen it's it's I think you and um, David Sims at the Atlantic made the good point of just sort of like another aspect of the Spider-Man phenomenon is like that's that's a movie that is not to say if you're like 40 years old and you're like really excited to see Spider-Man like there's anything wrong with you. But that that is a movie targeted towards a much younger demographic that's more confident and um, yes about going and returning to theaters and a lot of the movies targeted towards older folks even something like i don't know if you've seen west side story yet but like west side story is ideally the kind of like big sweeping big screen movie um that people would go see over the christmas yeah. holidays but I, I think it's targeted towards a a slightly older demographic than uh the spider-man movie is 
and you know that movie is not doing well either it's it's basically yeah. like anything that is not sort of like ip superheroes targeted towards you know 13 year old boys yeah not, not that no. there's anything wrong with that but you know to make that clear but of like that's the stuff that's doing really well because that's the audience that's like really returning to the movies and exactly. i understand a little bit of the apprehension is hollywood's stupid and hollywood you know sees a plan that makes money and that this might you know further uh escalate the the direction we were probably already always heading in where the only kind of movie that's going to premiere in a movie theater unless it's sort of a, a a more kind of uh let's let's say elongated release strategy like licorice pizza which we're about to talk about or yeah. something along the lines of what's happening with memoria um yeah you know the only kinds of movies that are, you're really going to see at your neighborhood uh regal or amc is going to be like these big super bowl sized blockbusters and yeah. that the more kind of like modest or adult stuff that's just going to like live on streaming or is going to yeah. have a very very different release strategy that maybe is not going to be like you know three thousand screens all in one weekend or something like that Exactly. And I was a little skeptical on Twitter the other day. And so I, so I come at this from the perspective of um, I worked in a movie theater for about four years. Um, so I had a sort of knowledge of how those trends uh, in box office. Well, I, three years. I don't know. Maybe it was I, anyways. I, I was able to see how the trends changed over time and stuff was changing even before the pandemic. I think that gets that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit of like um, you know, oh, well, the pandemic really sort of changed adult movie going, which it absolutely did. However, there was already a sort of decline happening steadily. We, before we were that. already heading to this. Spot. Exactly. I think the, the pandemic just sort of like when speed I, ramped it. When I started working at the local art house theater in Charlotte, um, our first year, we uh, first year I worked there, we played La La Land and that went for months. Mm -hmm. It ran for months and it made it was like, you know, hundreds of people still showing up and which was crazy for us as the time went on the attendance started to slip each year they started giving us more block like we were a, a regal art house and they started giving us like hey why don't you play some showings of endgame we we really like we think we'll need that and, you know maybe you want to open the lion king too um so you know that stuff started to happen and then um in addition the other thing i, I was skeptical on twitter that West Side Story or Nightmare Alley would have been huge hits in like normal times, partially because they're both remakes. They're both really long. Um, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not sold on the idea that they would have been big hits, even with the sort of star power and, you know, star whatever that they had. Um, I'm, I'm not sold, but I understand why people are, are sort of uh, freaked out by that. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, Nightmare Alley, which is yeah. the new movie from Guillermo del Toro. It's his follow-up to Shape of Water, which won Best Picture, and he won Best Director for. Um, how? What are What are your feelings on on Del Toro? I, I think I was like going through uh, earlier this week and and making kind of a, a kind of like rough list of all the Del Toro movies I'd seen, and and I liked more of them than I. I remember del toro is just like a weird filmmaker for me of like i respect him a lot and like admire a lot of the craft but i'm not i wouldn't say i'm like fully in the del toro hive of like i'm not always like 
eagerly anticipating his movies for whatever weird reason that that whole spiel just made it sound like i'm much harder on del toro than i actually am well just wait till i start um <laughs> uh you know so i have not seen all of his films and i think that's important to sort of qualify there's gaps in my knowledge both in his sort of um films made in uh the, the devil's backbone um and chronos i which i haven't seen uh but i've heard both are great and look forward to watching them eventually haven't seen all of his american films whether it's blade two whether it's crimson peak so i have a very limited sort of uh, you know when it comes to sort of like i would be the wrong person to to sort of make any sort of uh auteur declarations about guillermo del toro what i have seen though i make I, I like pacific rim a lot um fun movie fun movie um I like Pan's Labyrinth a good deal. I think it's a, a sort of very solid um, at, at what it wants to be, which is this sort I, of adult. I think adult... that's the masterpiece. That's that's the one I where think I think his, all of his yeah. instincts and ideas kind of like perfectly crystallize. Whereas like in some of the other movies, maybe like, you know, the, the creature stuff is really cool or, you know, he gets a good atmosphere, but the allegory doesn't really work or the allegory is really yeah. interesting, but maybe like the the genre stuff around it kind of suffers a little bit. I thought Shape of Water was totally flat. I was, especially in the year that that was, mm-hmm. with Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, Lady Bird, Get Out, even Call Me By Your Name, which I know has sort of baggage now that it didn't have back then. I right. could not believe that that movie won Best Picture. Like, it boggles my mind. Um, so I remember I walking not- out and being like, fairly positive on it but did not expect it to be the oscar juggernaut it was i was just like oh that's cool del toro made kind of like his tarantino movie just like here's like a collage of all these like genres i like and was just like that was very pretty it's it's a very pretty movie uh it has some good performances if i remember i haven't watched it since the theaters but i I haven't either i remember the ending being really sort of like "Eh, okay um Mm -hmm. It's a sort of, I don't know, it has that sort of dreamy Del Toro thing, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, his political allegories are pretty sort of spot on. Even Nightmare Alley, it's sort of clear what he's... It took me a while of, like, leading up to the release of, like, why why did he want to remake this? Like, what was the drive there, like, on the level of the political or the allegorical beyond, um, you know, the fact that he really likes, like, you know old school noir or whatever mm-hmm. um and, you know, this is very much a sort of film about con men and you know there's there's sort of allusions to fascism which has been a sort of driving thread throughout the major del toro movies that is um and so you know that's there as well of like you can read bradley cooper's character stanton carlisle as like a kind of a, you know trumpian figure it's very loose it's not quite as overt as something like red rocket which is very right. sort of clearly about um, you know, the 2016 election and stuff like that. But the, that political element is there, still there for Del Toro. Once again, it's another very pretty film. Um, I thought it was fine. It, it's way too long, again. Yeah. Um, it, it's like, it's... And I guess we should get this on the table as well. Um, so it is a remake of a 1947 film, which I believe you've seen as well. Yes, and as and I I heard is based off of a book that was written the year prior in forty six, and I've heard the book is particularly like really hardcore and nasty and dark and okay, like 
you know, I, I'm, it, it sounds like they probably had to, to taper down some stuff for the, oh, yeah. the move, the, the, the movie version that came out a year later, which, um, yeah, I watched for the first time like a month ago. Cause I believe it's on criterion channel. If anyone wants to yeah. check it out, they and just did a restoration I, a little while ago. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a pretty fun kind of like solid 40s noir. I don't think yeah. it's great, but it is, yeah. it is, it is. I was excited after watching it being like, okay, this feels like a cool genre movie with like a great concept that maybe the movie doesn't fully, uh, you know, use that concept and the sort of different, you know, potential set pieces and, um, kind of locales and, and aspects of the story to its sort of like full cinematic advantage. And someone like yeah. Del Toro could really take it into some sort of like dark, strange, surreal places that you just wouldn't have been able to go to in the 1940s. He kind of does at times. Kinda. But I kind of just yeah. feel like he made like a longer, slower version of yeah. the movie. Yeah. I was just sort of surprised of like, Oh, this is like feels so similar to the movie I watched really like a month does. ago. Except it is like I I agree with you. I think it is like interminably slow and and is like a movie I admire a lot from you know like all Del Toro things. Yeah. It looks immaculate. I think the performances are are pretty good pretty, across pretty the good board. Across the, yeah, but it 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 is missing a certain energy and a certain kind of like danger and darkness and i mean i know you're a big film noir person so you could probably speak to this even better than i can but it it is missing a little bit of that that edginess that i kind of crave from a noir and instead just kind of like goes along with this just sort of like gentle hum and occasionally flirts with being like gross and gnarly but mostly towards the end yeah yeah but i think it's it mostly felt like it felt like prestige del Toro kind of taking over and I yeah. was craving more of like gnarly genre movie del Toro. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say actually that the, so yeah, I am amongst film noirs. I prefer my noir to be a bit more sort of like economical and just like, like you said, like kind of mean and nasty of like, yeah, like the best, the best noirs were typically not made by, you know, like the biggest studios, like like mm-hmm. Criterion Channel did a, a retrospective a few years ago when I watched all the films. And it was wonderful, uh, and it was like Columbia Pictures Noir, and it was just basically mm. these movies that they made for relatively cheap, uh, and they're delightful. So even the original Nightmare Alley had, runs into some of these issues where it, it's sort of a little too long, a little too expanded. Um, but this one, you know, slowness can be very productive. <laughs> I did my undergrad thesis on this, so I like I'm like whenever I say like something slow, I like to sort of like qualify that because um, like you know, Memoria is slow, but that's a very productive uh, slowness. This right. just feels poorly edited um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of like it's just a collection of just like moving from scene to scene, and there's it's not really generating much moment. I really felt like, and this is a, a criticism that people lodge sometimes without really. Um, you know much context or much but it did feel like i was watching a very early cut of the film before he had sort of whittled down um you know to what the real essence of it was especially in that first hour which which does kind of try to generate a sort of you know atmosphere of oh this is the carnival this is you know that that or the other but even then he he makes some adjustments to the relationships and stuff like that that don't really you know pan out that that well um 
I don't know. I felt that the relationship with the Tony Collette character, which in the original movie is, is much better developed here was just kind of like, you get one kind of like mildly sexy scene with the two of them at the start. And then like, it just kind of like fades into the background. Um, like you said, very pretty film, very, uh, you know, the second half kind of picks it up and, and carries it to the finish line. But, um, I, I wish he had had a tighter version of this. Um, yeah, I, I should mention, because I don't know if we... I, I briefly looked away to get some, some coffee, so I might have missed it if you went through the plot. But I did um, not. No, yeah, we should, we should do that. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we, should, we should kind of give people an idea of what this movie is. It's basically, I think, the, the simplest version is it is about a, a circus carny turned con man who... Uh, pretends to be a a a psychic medium in order mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, as con men do, con people out of their money. And that character is played by Bradley Cooper in the film, and big all star cast including Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett as a therapist who is you know very like red lights flashing femme fatale energy. I kind of did enjoy Blanchett in this movie because of of just sort of like. She fully understands, I think, the genre, hard genre movie she's in, and is like, yeah. real, like the, she's just like leaning over furniture and like I, really yeah. like up playing it, and in in the way that like a, an old school noir like that would. And then you you know you got a great kind of bench of um people like Willem Dafoe and Tony Collette and David Strathairn and um, Richard Jenkins, who I thought was, I that's probably the section I enjoyed the most is I think when Jenkins enters the movie, I think it's the one part where it gets like a little bit of momentum just because like you're watching kind of an active con take place with Bradley yeah. Cooper trying to trick that character out of a bunch of money. Yeah, no. And so I agree. I, Kate Blanchett is clearly having fun in this movie. I do think I, I'm sympathetic with some people on Twitter who've said this where to a certain extent, it's like in the original, like you said, it's not really a spoiler since the moment she's on the screen, you're like, oh, she's going to screw him over. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, th- that's played a bit more as a twist in the original Nightmare Alley. The mm-hmm. character said by Helen Walker there. It's a bit more like she's she's supposed to in the original film she's like a bit more sort of like timid at first and then you clearly like the the you know that that femme fatale archetype which is both sort of problematic and the sort of cornerstone of noir sort of comes into place you're right blanche it takes a totally different turn it's just from scene one it's just sort of pure uh scenery chewing and sort of domination of the screen and the character um we get a bit more in this one compared to the original film of the stanton carlisle backstory um in the original film he's played by tyrone power he's just a sort of you know like you said he's a normal guy he kind of gets in with the you know the 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 carny lifestyle but is is sort of a dangerous con man all the same here it's like he's got big time like daddy issues and like he ends up in therapy with kate blanchett and we get continual flashbacks to this sort of incident which, um, I which I didn't I don't, need that. No, <laughs> Let, that this is this is kind of getting at like what you were were saying of like you. It's sort of adding ex- stuff on that you don't need in a yeah. noir. Like like you don't need a good noir does not need kind of like we need to like fully unpack the my relationship with my father yeah. on a therapy couch of like it, it. It's just adding a lot of needless backstory that I think robs it of some of that kind of like 
precise charging speed and, yeah. and more th- this should be a movie that is all about kind of its aesthetics and its atmosphere but it feels like in in an attempt to sort of like well can i make this material this b movie material a little bit more kind of prestige and yeah um kind of elegant on the surface i i even think like the carnival stuff is where i think we get the most weird del toro energy is that yeah, i was wanting I mean, with with kind of the way the sets are constructed but i i there's sort of a glossiness to this movie that also to me yeah, kind of felt you know it, it takes away from the effect a little bit even like if you compare like one of the the original film's most famous images which is um the rooney mara character um molly when she's she's like channels energy or something as part of her act like mm-hmm. in the original film it's this sort of gorgeous black and white image here like you said it has this sort of uh generic gloss to it that sort of that deprives it of some power i do agree with you though that like the carnival stuff and especially i i felt like the first 20 minutes or so of the movie were really strong mm-hmm. um we opened as much as i didn't really like the stanton carlisle backstory and that might just be part of my my sort of bias against uh like you know intense depictions of psychoanalysis and cinema of like spellbound is like my least favorite hitchcock movie like despite like a few appealing moments like it's i don't like, like that one either it's, <laughs> to be honest it's so slow and so sort of meandering um and it, i like the sort of dolly surrealist piece yes. in that but other than that like not much um but so there's some scenes in this that remind me of that but early in the film especially you mentioned all the character actors that show up. That was like my favorite part of like, you, you start a scene, you're like, oh, hey, it's uh, Holt McCallany from uh, Mindhunter. Or, right. oh, look, there, it's uh, Tim Blake Nelson. He showed up. It's like, uh, um, that's like the fun part. It's like, you've got all these actors. And Willem Dafoe gives like a really sort of nasty performance early in the movie as like mm-hmm. this just, just sort of piece of shit dude from uh, the carnival who's just fully immersed in that lifestyle and this is a very i won't get too deep in the spoil this is a very schematic movie in some ways like it exists to have stanton carlisle start at one point rise to another point and then crash back down to earth at another right um i liked the way that del toro teased out some of the the the, the way in which the the, the sort of stanton carlisle if you've seen the original movie none of this is a spoiler it's the same movie like right it, it and, really and i like, have noticed people nothing yeah i have noticed people online like the people who I think seem to like this movie a bit more have not seen the original and therefore got to the sort of ending point of this movie. And we're like, Holy cow, what a, that was kind of a really slow movie, but Holy cow, what an ending. Exactly. And I think people like you and I that had seen, you know where it's going, if you know it's, where it's going, yeah. then it gets to that moment. And you're like, okay. Uh, like I even think the, the forties version of that ending is a, is a lot more upsetting than where Del Toro's version feels like kind of like a winky little shrug to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the I, Bradley Cooper is clearly going in on his Oscar reel in that final scene of just like right. you know he's he's going you know trying, but like the original film definitely gets it sort of like a you know I think the main thing he does change is that you do get a bit more of Carlisle at the vague uh, I'll try to be vague but vague spoiler warning if you're really planning to see this film. Um, I think we get a little bit more of Carlisle at the carnival and then you end with that line mm-hmm. in the first film of like, how does a man fall so low? And right. it's like, uh, which we don't get as much of that. We just kind of get an image of uh, of Cooper, which I thought was an effective 
choice, but also I agree of like uh, there, there's something to Tyrone Power's performance in that film that does sort of make that a little bit more unnerving. I know exactly what you're saying now that I'm thinking back on it. And I did wonder at a certain point of like, because I'm assuming like I think he had originally cast DiCaprio in this I th- role. I, I think that was the the first choice. I do remember that, and I forget if and it was the Scorsese movie or the McKay movie. But like DiCaprio dropped out to do like one of those other two or something. I think like it was that. the McKay movie, but for my sanity, I'm going to pretend it was the Scorsese movie. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think DiCaprio's been. And I think it was, who was it? It might have been Chris Tapley or some other folks that I follow on Twitter were having this conversation the other day of like, DiCaprio sort of wants to play these sort of, uh, you know, morally ambiguous characters and he's going to get a chance in Killers of the Flower Moon, which I don't know if you've read that book, but I tore through that over Thanksgiving break. It's incredible. I cannot wait for that. I mean, beyond oh, just I, being a I will definitely, movie. Yeah, I will definitely pick it up. I remember like very closely following the behind the scenes drama of like him being cast as a more kind of traditional leaning man and then being like, no, I want to play this like side weirdo. Can we like rewrite the movie around him? And then that ended up well, being the, the reason the... for the budget issues. And then now Jesse Plemons is playing the character he was originally cast for and he's playing like a, a more kind of morally despicable character but it sounds yeah, interesting it, it, it's when you read the book you'll it, it's very fascinating of his choice and i totally understand why and i think actually having seen jesse plemons in a few films this year he's a great actor and i think he's going to do a great job as tom white and um i we were getting off into my my extreme excitement for that film but um my i, think I mean it's, it's it's gonna come up with if there's we do an episode on like a 2022 oh yeah that's probably the movie i'm most looking forward to this year it's it's at the top of my list for me as well i think it's um having read that book having been sort of familiarized with that story um i think he can do some really incredible things with it and i'm I'm really intrigued by um uh dicaprio's choice to want to play uh the ernest burkhart character because that is um that's gonna be a difficult and interesting role it's it's certainly not as sort of um, even as, as sort of black and white as I mean it is it, like you said it is just sort of a despicable disgusting character but there's there's shades there that you wonder about when you're reading it and uh, that'll be interesting it's even not as like Stanton Carlisle is just kind of a sociopath so I understand right. why <laughs> um, why DiCaprio sort of shifted away from that eventually but Bradley Cooper still did a very good job in this film yeah. um, he's good in it he is better in our other movie that we're talking about in a little yes. bit um granted he's only in uh that other film for one scene but he's uh incredible in it um but um yeah i mean it, it look this is a uh this is a fine three out of five star motion picture uh yeah. it has its charms um you will not remember it for long honestly i watched it about two weeks ago and i was a little worried coming into this podcast i was like shit am i gonna have anything to say about this beyond like eh, it's fine but it makes if you've seen both films it makes for an interesting comparison and contrast study um I liked the sort of snowy atmosphere at times. Like you said, yes. the, the film is a little like atmosphere deficient um, in that like sort of the, the, the cinematography isn't really, it, it's, it's pretty and well photographed, but it's not really capturing that sort of, I mean, even compared to something like tragedy of Macbeth, like, oh, which, Oh my God, is just which, a, which, which is, is funny. Cause I wa- saw both the same week and I was like, that's how you do a noir guys. Exactly. In that film itself is a testament to like why you shoot in black and white for stuff. And I've heard del Toro is doing one of those 
post-converted black and white film or like you know like what they did for parasite and mad max for this film yeah, just shoot it in black and white. And that, that's my thing. Next time. Like, if that's it's what like, you wanted to do. Just do that. Uh, the, the Mad Max one baffles me, though. Like, I will never be able to watch that film in black and white. I just don't get it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, so that's why it was like, it was a little hard last weekend when everyone was like mourning the death of, of adult movies. And I was like, we're really making like this, like, okay remake like the, the the emblem of that i'm like all right yeah but, it's, um, it's i get it's, it i get it you know it would have yeah. been a, it would have been a bigger hit in years past i think it would have made more money in a different year but also it would have made like, four million instead of one right it's it's <laughs> it's i i agree with you it's sort of like i i admire a lot of the craft on display while kind of like got to the end and was kind of just sort of shrugged a little bit yeah, like exactly. it, it just huh. sort of like okay. failed to get a, a rise out of me and i i i think it's in conversation for having seen all of del toro's movies i think it's in conversation for i think his weakest movie by far um, I, I liked it about the same level that i liked shape of water maybe slightly more because i knew the story but yeah it, it's not i'm excited i'm excited for him to go back to his sort of uh historical analysis of fascism uh wheelhouse with uh-huh. uh the pinocchio movie which is coming out this oh, coming year yeah. on uh netflix um let him sounds... make the lovecraft movie that's where i'm at the like i i, I can't gonna, believe that this is what he wanted eventually. to do with that oscar paycheck instead of like can i get another crack at that well from what i understand is that he said I think there was an interview maybe with Collider where he said that if anyone was going to, it was going to fund at the mountains of madness, he's going to rewrite it a little bit and then go to Netflix with it. Netflix got Pinocchio as a result of the Oscar. And then I, I guess he had carte blanche at, at searchlight to do just like one more film. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, I guess I'll do this. Um, yeah. I mean, it was just kind of like, okay. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, it, it is a little bit of a, uh, of a weird blank check to cash of just like i'll yeah. remake this noir with like i like i said it's a kind of easy to understand why he would be intrigued to doing a con man movie right now that's kind of like the sort of um but i didn't really feel like the the political saliency of it was all that potent or interesting or like i've heard some people making fun of like the vague allusions to the fact that it's set during world war ii like they they, they toss that off a couple times and it's like mm. oh, okay i guess he's making a parallel between hitman like con man and hitler i it's it, it's strange um yeah it's just I, like it's just kind of a shrug appealing elements solid performances kind of just a big nothing of a movie though well, let's transition to a movie I know you and I are very ecstatic about, indeed, which indeed. is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, Licorice Pizza, uh, which is now playing in uh, a couple cities, a couple theaters in New York and L.A. I saw yep. it. There was kind of like a weekend where they did a bunch of like pop up mm. screenings around the yep. country. And then it's going wide over the Christmas holiday. I I'm I'm really, really excited to talk about this movie with you. I think it's. You know, not to tease too much of a future episode. It it it's in the conversation for maybe my favorite movie of the year. Yeah, I'm also someone that's just in the bag for Paul Thomas Anderson and loves just about every single one except for maybe Heart Eight is the one that I I think is good, but I don't love in the same way as the others. 
Um, yeah, Heart, Heart Aid is solid. The the Master is the one that I struggle with the most, but I've seen it once, and I know mm-hmm. I need to revisit. So um, I am also a uh, a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. This was my most anticipated film of the year going into the year. Um, I I really wish like I was out in L.A. when it was playing. It just so happened that it was playing during um, like finals at um, USC. Yeah. Um, so I saw it on a screener that uh, Focus was uh, kind enough to send NCFCA critics. Um, and we had a short window to watch it. Um, and I uh, is another film that I saw during a sort of high stress period. And I'm like, I need to see this again. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I, this, this is a delightful, delightful movie. Um, it is one of my favorites of the year. Um, I, I guess it's, I have, uh, it's like, I have two films directed by dudes named Anderson in my, like, top five this year. I'm like, okay. Um, it's like, I feel like a very sort of basic cinephile, but that's okay. Wes Anderson also made a great film this year, and, and Paul Thomas Anderson has, has made one of his, uh, even if it is a sort of lighter film compared to uh, to Phantom Thread, uh, this is still sort of uh, a, one of his best, um, and one that I imagine I'll, I'll revisit a lot. Um, I guess I'll, t- I'll take summary duties this time. Um, it's set in the San Fernando Valley in the 70s. Um, it follows a uh, teen actor named Gary Valentine, who's played by Cooper Hoffman, the son of the uh, late uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, the film begins, he meets um, an older girl. Uh, she's in her, she says she's 25. Uh, I'm with other people in the audience who right. she says that she very changes sort of, it three or four times throughout the movie. Like, I'm like 25. Attention. And it's like, <laughs> are you okay? Um, he but meets let's her, say she's in her early twenties. She is at correct. least older than him to the extent that there is an age gap. I'm sure we'll get to the Twitter discourse. How can we, we, not? we don't have to spend much time, but we should at least like, we, we must acknowledge it for everyone. <laughs> who's like texting me like why why is this movie problematic and i'm like just hold on um he meets her he's like he has he's a very sort of cocky guy um and he's like let me take you on a date and she's like you're 15 Like, okay but they end up striking up this sort of friendship um and the film follows their adventures in the in the 70s as they go uh throughout all these schemes and adventures uh together um, while there's sort of political stuff going around in the in the background at times, and also uh, sort of uh, conflicts in their own sort of individual coming of age stories, um, it is a, a film sort of devoid of a uh, linear narrative in some ways. Um, yeah. But uh, at least in terms of like your traditional like three act plot, it's more of a sort of collection of scenes. But it is the best version of a film that's oh, sort of just yeah. a collection of scenes. I um, mean, it, it, it is. It is. I don't think it is. You know, I'm certainly not the first one to make this comparison. But you know, it's it's his version of kind of like a shaggy teen comedy in yeah. the vein of like an American Graffiti or Days and Confused. And those are movies that are are just sort of like a group of people hanging out and just sort of like one crazy misadventure just sort of leads to the next and of like. You exactly. Know, I, I, I think some of the reactions I'd heard of this going in, I think made me think it was maybe going to be I don't, like it's shaggy and there isn't really like a through line like this causes this causes that 
narrative, but I but don't it think is... it's a messy movie no, at all. Like no, 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 it, no, not it, at all. It, it feels sort of propulsive. Um, and and you know, it, it, to touch a little bit on like the review I wrote for Film Inquiry, like you know, I think the the through line through the movie is this sort of like flirtatious friendship between these two people who are ne- yeah you know again to hint at the conversation we'll have later like are never really i bought like going to actually get together of like no that'd be absurd but like they're they're clearly drawn to each other and have this 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 sort of special friendship relationship and care for each other yeah fall in and out of friendship with each other and that's sort of the drama or center of the movie and then anderson you know, having grown up in the Valley around this time period is able to sort of like infuse this movie with like different political or um, Hollywood figures, some yeah. real, some composites of other people. And yeah. it, it, it felt to me like a collection of like weird Valley stories. Like, like you, you, you spend a lot of time in LA now. I'm sort of like, maybe you can speak to this, but I just get the sense of the, it, it, it just sort of felt a move like a movie of like, yeah, here's this place I grew up at. And here's just kind of like the weird stories you would hear of like, yeah. So my friend like delivered a waterbed to John Peters and he was like really coked out and weird. And who knows if it's true. It's probably not, but it like makes for a great story nonetheless. Yeah, no. So the thing about LA for, for certain, so uh, two things, one, the other movie that this has been compared to all the time already has been uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, which very much a sort of similar sort of uh, different structure. Tarantino's leading to sort of a big climax within right. this sort of, uh, you know, hangout structure, whereas, uh, you know, PTA is just kind of making a, a sort of full on hangout film throughout, even if there's no sort of third act turn. Um, the thing about LA is that like you you could live there and like not really see much of the city because it's so sort of organized around it. Like I'm I'm a grad student at USC. I spend almost all of my time in that area. I live nearby. I don't get out and see much of the city very often. Um, so you can make movies about all kinds of like areas and neighborhoods in LA. So like the Valley is its sort of own world uh unto itself and so i can imagine a lot of those stories and i believe like the the cooper hoffman character is based on a producer is it gary goitzman i think is the yeah it's it's he were it's tom hanks's kind of producing partner um and and this is based off a lot of like his own stories growing up and i guess you know an interview i listened to with pta i believe it was on bill simmons podcast and and pta was just talking about like calling him up at night and just being like hey can you tell me that like weird story again about like when you had a waterbed business when you were a kid or like when you went there's a section of the movie where he convinces the alana heim character um to to go with him to be his chaperone for a press tour for what what is like the name of the movie is not the same but it's very clearly supposed to be the movie yours mine and ours that lucille ball was in and you know that's based off of a, a a story about how the the real guy was uh wanted to go on a a press tour like that but needed a chaperone and i think in real life the story pta said is he like 
hired a, a prostitute or like a stripper or someone like that to be his chaperone or something just so he could go on this press tour so it's just yeah. sort of like a bunch of weird little like funny stories like that that you are yeah. kind of based on this guy's life experience but also probably just weird things paul thomas anderson and people he grew up with would just hear living around kind of the valley growing up in the 70s yeah, no. So it is Gary Gertzman, um, who is his Tom Hanks producing partner. I'm not 100% sure producing, I pronounced his last name right. But yeah, I mean, I think that like he did, did like have an interaction with John Peters, who wasn't like, you know, like he said, he's like insane in the movie. It's like right. and Cooper, Cooper shows up for Bradley Cooper shows up for eight minutes and just goes on and just sort of like you know like everyone says just kind of takes over the movie uh um, I, I, I have to say you you saw this in kind of like the virtual screener they did for for uh oh Ascender. i can only imagine he just tore up the crowd yeah uh, i went and saw at like a sold out like pretty raucous uh sort of pop-up showing here in atlanta yeah. and people were laughing throughout the movie but the the coup when bradley cooper enters as uh john peters that whole stretch of the movie which i don't want to fully spoil for people who haven't seen it but it's just like a master class of like screwball comedy yeah, it's and, like and, screwball bordering on the surreal it's yes, remarkable it is I mean, people were incredible. like falling out of their seats laughing that that whole section yeah. of the movie just like brought the house down it was pretty fun to, to be a, a part apparently of. pta did i cannot remember where i read this but apparently pta did talk to um john peters and like asked him like hey is it okay if i like put this in the movie and make you look insane and apparently the deal and i'm sorry to whoever interviewed pt and got this or discovered this i cannot remember where but i know i read it um and he was like yeah okay maybe i could have been nicer to gary back in the day you can make me do whatever you want but um just make sure you include my my favorite pickup line yes which is like <laughs> do, do you like peanut butter sandwiches and it's like what uh it's it's just it's a very uh it's this movie does have a like there's so much of pta's other films in it like there's certainly a lot of inherent vice in this film just in mm -hmm. terms of the sort of like you said the screwball um element but also so i want to get the i know we said we talked about it later i want to get the age gap thing on the table and just sort of shoot it down instantly because i let's, think it's ridiculous yes let's let's give some context for this there okay. has been a i'm i'm going to say controversy in air quotes because yeah. i'm still a little um suspicious of like how big this controversy is uh, like how many people really um are sort of on a soapbox about this as opposed to people who disagree with it just sort of like resharing it on twitter to like this is, dunk yes. on it yeah. um but uh, essentially the there there are kind of two big arguments against this movie that i've i've heard the first, which I think you and I both agree is kind of like pretty valid. There is a, yeah. um, I think the one movie where the one part of the movie that sort of like trips a bit, um, is there is a joke involving a, a white character, a, a supporting white character who owns a Japanese restaurant. And all I'll say is just his, his relationship or to Japanese culture is, this sort of like absurd joke that i i think the joke is yeah. on that character but it also i fully understand and kind of sympathize with a lot of asian critics and asian audience members who because of the way that joke sort of plays out it flirts with some very kind of overt 
racist Asian stereotypes. And yeah. I, I can understand the the uncomfortableness of being in a theater and of like, are and people not knowing, laughing at Not this? knowing what the laughter is necessarily right. And, and I honestly felt that in, in that. I think when that character comes back around the second time around to not ruin that punchline, I was like, oh, I fully get the joke here. But the first time yeah. when it's him sort of talking to, I believe it's his wife or the co-owner of the restaurant. Yeah. He's talking to her in the sort of like it's ching chong ding dong, like super racist. It's it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. It's it's I cringed and even, you know, as as a white person was a little like fully got that that feeling of like, are the people in my theater laughing? Like, what are they laughing? Are they laughing that he's doing like, oh, ha ha ha, that voice is funny? Or yeah. is is it as the joke is intended? And so I, I think that is the one part of the movie that if people want to criticize it for that, that is totally fair game. And I yeah. think it's like the one bit where the th- that joke, which comes back a couple times, does not land, I think, as gracefully as pta probably thinks it does uh yeah i had the same because i think i was talking with our our friend uh hunter howman on twitter about this the other day of like the intent of the joke or at least what the intent of that scene is is very clear to me Mm -hmm. of like because even in the lead up so the the context of the original scene is it's a character played by john michael higgins and his wife uh miyoko she doesn't speak um english and there's so there's this like that's the genesis of the i'm putting heavy air quotes around this the gag is that he speaks in a like mock it's like you said it's it's terrible um i do think the intent is clear there of like it's mocking the way that sort of um american uh men american culture in general sort of um uh, the way that it presents japanese culture because i think it's gary's mom is like reading an advertisement at one point she's like the waitresses are perfect dolls or whatever. And you see yeah, the it, reaction on Miyoko's face right. and you're like, that okay, made I, me laugh. That, I that understand was what PTA is getting at here of like, there's a critique there. The Higgins thing is, it's just, it's at the, at worst, it's ill-advised overload. Uh, at best, it's just doesn't play. And like mm-hmm. you said, it's just like, it is not, it is not, specific enough and it's sort of uh the way that it's configured to really make sense um the sort of running nature the other argument i've heard is that like it's just further evidence of the fact that all the like men in gary's life are horrible uh right. i've seen that critique thrown around and i think that's valid as well and, um, and when the character but, comes back a second time it's it's the joke it you know he has a different asian a different wife wife he's, and then there's like uh, Alana Heim like goes into the bathroom and there's like a white girl who's having to put on makeup yeah. to make her look Asian. And the joke is like, oh, this there's is like totally about yeah, this exactly. guy has an Asian yeah. fetish. And, and yeah, um, it's so but yeah. I, so I'm with you on that, and that like that is yeah. the film's um, at the very least something of a misstep. Uh, at best, a sort of well intentioned. I mean, PTA has said like. You know, I, you know, know people who've gone through a very similar experience. You know, I don't want to sort of, um, you know, uh, remove the sort of racism of the past. Admirable. Um, understand totally. I also understand the sort of discomfort there. And I think we have right. to sort of, um, like you said, I've, I've, I've been interested to read the sort of readings of that scene and the, the criticism of it. And I think it's very valid. Um, 
because it it plays in a very absurdist fashion and it's hard to know where um where the laughter is going in that moment right but then the the more kind of absurd is there has been this sort of like like I said, air quotes controversy that's come up yeah. around the the age difference of Alana Himes character and uh Cooper Hoffman's character in the movie and people I think a couple people insinuating that it is this like pedophilic relationship. You guys um, can't see that, me, but I'm rolling my eyes and, really, really hard. Yeah. And and then like other people who haven't seen the movie sort of retweeting that those few takes and being like, yeah, we should protest it. I, I I've honestly like the one thing I'll say about this is it's been pretty funny to see like the memes that are like licorice pizza had to die for or is like taking the bullet for, for Red, Red Rocket? Rocket, which yeah, exactly. is a movie I really like, but is like pretty explicitly about like a very inappropriate sexual relationship and in this sort of like absurd comedy and uh that yeah i mean i i i saw that at film fest 919 and it very clearly made a lot of people uncomfortable in the theater and is like really towing the line between like we're making fun of how horrible this guy is but also like you you've got to watch like a kind of predatory relationship happen in real time yeah and, i gotta and, be honest i i love red rocket i think it's wonderful um you're right it, it it loves to sort of mess with its audience a little bit right um it is also the funniest movie i've seen well along with probably licorice pizza but um it is deeply deeply uncomfortable like you said but it yes. is consistently it is just wild hilarious that licorice too. pizza is the movie getting that controversy well when, and like, i think after i saw that... red rocket i was like Oh man, this is this is going to be a firestorm when this movie comes out. <laughs> I think Baker excels more in a certain sort of subtle moralism of like I think he there's enough judgment on that character even right. though um and it's clear enough in the film especially for a sort of liberal political audience of like that he's meant to sort of be a Trump analog in a certain right. way. Um, that film is making a very sort of specific American critique uh, right down to him running naked while NSYNC plays and the American flag flaps in the background. It's a very sort of uh, blunt movie in that regard, but it does it in an interesting way. Red Rocket's great. If you have a chance to see that yes. and you like uh, sort of feeling that level of discomfort, um, it's wonderful. But yeah, the the licorice pizza thing, you know, it was mentioned by a few critics and most people shut it down. I think when it really exploded was you got some some people in the sort of TikTok and uh, YouTube influencer crowd who, um, you know, Gen Z folks who love to freak out over anything. Right. Um, and I'm right on that line between millennial and Gen Z, but I, I feel a sort of superiority over the the moralizers. On, you got uh, enough on of TikTok. our millennial angst in you. I, I think <laughs> I think so. I I'm yeah. So. Um, but there was a TikTok that went viral of like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe it. And then like people in the comments, like, it made me so uncomfortable and I felt like I was going to be sick. And I'm like, what movie were you watching? It's, it's also get just, it. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of, the only thing I'll really say to it, and I tried to not even touch, I tried to sort of like not even engage with the issue, just sort of like start my review I yeah. wrote of just sort of flat out like, 
this is what the relationship clearly is yeah. from like what I saw is like it's it's a friendship like they don't yeah. do anything like it, I don't I never left the movie being like and now they're gonna go have sex yeah or like they're gonna say, date I, each other and I, and I will say for the folks uh, this is this is my one and only spoiler alert and so if you don't want to hear this just like skip ten seconds. I was surprised he had them kiss at the end a yeah. little bit. I was a little like, oh, okay, all right. I'll say this, though. My thing about the movie is I don't think the film ever, like, I've seen some people say, like, oh, well, you know, it must be Alana Haynes, the bag. No, that's not it. I, I don't think either character is portrayed as necessarily being in a healthy place in life. No. Or necessarily, like, like the whole thing, uh, the whole plot of the movie is that Gary has been in this adult world so long. Like, the, the one of the keys to the movie is there's a scene where he goes to audition, and he's auditioning with all these little kids, and it's Maya Rudolph is one of the people auditioning him, and, and they come in, and he's known him for years, and he's, like, glad-handing with him like he's an adult, and they're like, he's just too old at this point. But he's he's still a kid, but he's, like, you know wants to be an adult really bad he has all these business ideas he's like he, he uh, like sort of orders, hustler i love the detail of like when he's in restaurants he'll like you know order a round of cokes for people like james bond would order yeah. like a martini or something and yeah. it's just like the 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 con the like contrast of like the most sort of like childish kind of innocent action but of like he's doing it with like the bravado of like look at me i'm hot shit I'll, exactly. I'm going to buy that woman at the bar over there a Coca-Cola. Exactly. No, I mean, and so he's trying so hard to be an adult. And Alana Haim is, is kind of in the same boat. She's older, but she uh, she lives at home. She's stuck with, you know, a family. She's stuck in a dead-end job. She never really got, you know, she's constantly trying to sort of find, um, you know, ways. And, and I think in Gary's ambition, they sort of go together. It's like, okay, we can, you know, do these things together and get out of the fail. They both go in different directions at different points. She tries to work for the, you know, the Joel Walks uh, political campaign, which is a sort of interesting tangent the movie goes on. But the thing is, is that they're basically sort of like very lonely people who just kind of like, you know, connect with each other and need each other. And like you said, there's nothing overtly sexual. There's a sort of brief moment of intimacy that makes you go oh, okay um but like my gosh if that's people's bar for what makes them uncomfortable in movies i, I don't want to see where american cinema goes because this is like you said i think it's a very loud vocal minority yeah of just yeah. like people it's... who got on twitter and were like oh my gosh like i can't believe like and so it's like five people in the whole world but like we elevate their voices because they're loud and we like to make fun of them uh, it's a dumb thing to do but like uh I think the movie's much sadder than people are letting on to. It's very funny, but it has a, a certain melancholy that PTA's yeah. films tend to have. And so I think like that emotional nuance is being lost in folks who are like, well, it's just this nice, wonderful, sweet film about a pedophilic relationship. And it's like, what are, what are you no, on about? No, it's like, <laughs> no. It, 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 I mean, it's so... It... Uh. I mean, I can't engage with that part of it anymore because it's just sort of like exactly. what, what no, movie did can, you see? Can, like, like, like watch, to say what I think that away. Yeah, to say what I think the movie is is like I think it's it's a movie about you know when you meet someone in your life and there there is this sort of like you know it it could be anything it it could be a romantic relationship in this case i think it's more of a friendship it it yeah it it could be a work relationship or you know like a work partnership or something but you meet someone at some point in your life and there is this sort of like 
connection there and you sort of pull apart but then inevitably come back together and eventually realizing that like you need the other person as much as they need you and it's sort of like that that is sort of like the magic of this movie to me it is not all that different from phantom thread in in a certain way and and that maybe like is is maybe we can wrap up with like a fun or you know we can keep going of this like fun conversation of i think where pta is in his career but it, it it was just sort of like and the flirtiness of it i think i described it as someone to someone the other day as like it's similar to the flirtation of like if in like if you had i don't have an older sister i have a younger sister but like if you had an older sister growing up and you had like a friend that had a crush on that older sister and they like never were going to act on it but you know like to sort of mess with him she would maybe like flirt with him a little bit but of like there's no way that's happening of like she's not interested in him and this is just sort of like to me the like i think the cooper hoffman character is clearly like i'm in love with this older woman i i I want to try and woo her i think the alana heim character is like i've got nothing going on in my life i can't believe i'm hanging out with this 15 year old and his like high school friends but of like he's interesting and he's funny and of like yeah. all this crazy stuff happens when I'm around him. And like, that's better than what I have going on in my life. So like, but there's I, moments I will... where it's very clear where she's like, what the fuck? Right. She has like, that like moment with this... her sister where she's like, why yeah. am I hanging out with a 15 year old all the time? Or like, even I'm the scene at the end of the, at the end of the John Peters segment. And she's just sitting on the curb and they've just gone through this like nightmare ordeal. And she's yes. watching these three teenage boys just like, goof around being like just like just idiots with each other and this is very clear and i think that's the sort of turning point where we get the joel walk storyline right um, and the, which and, i thought so was I great think it's about uh, her yeah. learning to to mature but also then realizing like no the I, adult I, world I ca- kind of sucks in some ways this yeah. guy's still and being yeah like, exactly I, I care for this this like you know even though like i can't hang out with this 15 year old and his friends all the time even though I don't ever buy that there's anything that romantic with them on the no. table. Like, no, there. The, I have this sort of like care and this friendship for this, this teenager. And yeah. like, I can't just sort of like, I need to grow up, but I can't totally shut him out of my life because there, yeah. there is, there is a, a magic charge with them in the way that like, you know, two friends could have a magic charge or yeah. two coworkers you know, I don't know why this, maybe this is because this is a movie podcast, but like a Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, like that's a pr- professional yeah. version of that, of like two people who like, there's nothing romantic there, but of just like, you know, as much as they might butt heads with each other, they're, they're always going to come back together of like, they complement each other. And, and to exactly. me, that's the magic and the sweetness of the movie is just of like, wow, when you just like find that other person in your life that no matter what other crazy stuff is going on, you just can't like be away from that person. Yeah, I know. And I mean, they have, you know, that's, it's a very, like you said, it's a sweet movie right up until the end. And I mean, and it's like the, but it goes off in different directions in which it's like, you know, it's, I mean, like the very first thing that she's like, it's like, where are your parents? Like, he's really sort of just like on his own and they, they kind of, you know, and even like she tries to get in with, with Joel walks and she feels like she's sort of really in with that crew, but like 
that's a whole other storyline where he is sort of dealing with his own things and she's just kind of a pawn. I love right. the, I love the taxi driver homage, by the way, in that. Oh, in that, yeah. I'm glad I'm not the, I, I, was, I was wondering, like, I was like, I wonder if I was that's watching that, what I was like, this that's, is, but yeah, I it, love that It too. has to be. There's no way it can't be. Um, but um, it, once again, it ends up in a very different direction and, and she sort of, um, that's getting near the end of the movie. Anyways, the, the bottom line with this film is it's very funny. I'm very excited. Adam Naiman just published, I think, an interview with PTA, which I haven't read yet because I didn't oh, want. He's sort of the yeah. ultimate sort of he, PTA he public scholar. PTA he wrote book. the book on him. Yeah. Um, so I tried not to read too much because I just knew that would sort of uh, shade my opinion before I, I went on the podcast. But I read a little bit and I think it's going to be – I'm looking forward to reading more. Um, I always have this this tension where like, I don't like to read too much before I write or talk about things. But yes. like, I'm really eager to read what other critics have to say about this film. Yeah. Uh, beyond his, his review in particular, I think him and David Ehrlich's reviews mm, who are both yeah. like very, very glowing were the two after I wrote mine, I was like, man, I'm a moron. Cause look at all these things. These two guys were able <laughs> to tie in together with, with this. Um, but I, I mean, even like, Here's maybe like to talk about PTA as kind of like an auteur filmmaker, like like mm. the last thing I'll kind of bring up to 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 wrap us up. I mean, like I I think he's at a really interesting spot of like starts out kind of his movies in the '90s. He's very young. He's like my age, like in his late twenties. Yeah, and they they are these like very kinetic, energetic movies where he's like they have a lot of flash and he's moving the camera a lot and doing a lot of like crazy zooms and they're like these big star-studded like ensemble pieces like boogie nights and magnolia and they very much feel like a filmmaker a young filmmaker like waving his hands in the air and being like look at me i'm the next thing and, and I can pretty, I can do what my favorite directors do. Right, I can do what Robert Altman does. I can do what Martin Scorsese does. Yes, he's very clearly me. like putting himself as like I'm the the next. I'm in the lineage yeah. of like these directors. And then you know there's Punch Drunk Love is kind of this interesting little like palate cleanser. I feel like for him after those very ambitious movies. And then you get to this mid period like There Will Be Blood and The Master, which are these like very dense very like heavy movie sort of historical epics that i feel like are are kind of like about america and are about these sort yeah. of like big ideas of like religion and capitalism and even even inherent vice in its more comic tones fits within that sort of right epic inherent vice sort is of sort of like this weird historical. transition between kind of like that really heavy stuff that's like layered with so many ideas and to where i feel like he's at now with like phantom thread and with this movie where it's like his filmmaking isn't fussy and like he's he's clearly got a lot of like style on display this is a gorgeous looking movie he's doing these like long elaborate tracking shots but they aren't yeah calling attention to themselves as much as exactly they used to. exactly and i feel like he he developed a more refined and kind of precise and singular style with movies like the master and there will be blood yeah and now it just kind of just feels like and I sort of get the sense, like listening to interviews with him, that he's kind of just like, yeah, I just like making movies and of like, I'm not like reaching for these like grand thesis themes and stuff. It, it, like Phantom Thread was like, I want to make a costume drama, like a gothic romance and then gets to do his version of that. And this yeah. is like, I want to do a teen comedy and gets to do his version of that. 
And yeah. so I think he's at this fascinating place where like his movies are still as like pleasurable and have as much sort of like wonderful craft on display. And you feel like you're in the hands of a master, but it just sort of feels like someone who's at a much more relaxed state of their career and is just like, yeah, I just kind of want to play around with different stuff or do movies about kind of like relationships between people. I, I don't know. Is that kind of a sense? Yeah, as well? no, absolutely. Because I mean, like there will be blood. It's very much a film that's like striving to be like the great American like masterpiece right. of like, you know, it's this sort of monumental like, you know, everyone talks about that film sort of in connection to, to Kubrick. And, you know, it, it's very much this big big film and you know and phantom thread is like it this is i think licorice pizza is very much sort of like you said it's, it's honest and upfront about what it is it still is maintaining his sort of interest in sort of complicated emotions and sort of contradictory emotions and, and at it's times got that, and like, complex characters energy yeah. to it that like all of his other stuff it's which very, is what very I surreal at times it yeah. has some very funny very strange moments um, it's a beautifully shot film. You you actually you beat me to it on the tracking shots thing. I, I noticed that throughout the film, but like you said, they never feel very flashy. But yeah, I think we will perhaps end up. My my favorite of his films is Phantom Thread. Um, mm. I have only seen Licorice Pizza once, but that 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 does seem like it'll hold up at the moment. But it's, when it's you, number when you... five on probably okay. my ranking, so little right so now. a little bit lower for you. Yeah, um, it's I just think it's. And I think based on what you were saying, I think we could see that, that as a sort of transitional point. That and Inherent Vice as this sort of pairing. Because uh, Inherent Vice that... is like, I I mean, that's sort of weird because it's, I've heard it's so close to the Pynchon novel that it's based off of. It is. But, but if also I it kind of feels like. when I read Pynchon. Yeah. It also just kind of feels like him being like, I just want to make kind of a shaggy detective movie. You know, I want to make my version of The Long Goodbye. Very funny when he talks about his influences because I remember he was like when that came out he was like it's kind of like a Zucker Brothers movie and it's like Airplane <laughs> and most people who watch that will not get that sense at all. But inherent his Vice lack and, of pretensions is so funny so and great. wonderful of, of like people asking him like what's your favorite movie of the year and he's just like yeah, I don't Shang-Chi. know Venom Two was pretty fun. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Um, but like Phantom Thread might ultimately be the sort of interesting career turning point where it's like it still has the sort of veneer of seriousness mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that sort of mid period of his work had where it seems like it's this very, I mean, I remember seeing that in theaters and I, people did not realize it was a comedy. Like oh, did, I had the did, same experience. Yeah. It did not dawn on people. This movie was hilarious and that it was like, that like, it, it, I think it clicked for some, one of my, I saw it twice. I think it clicked for one of my audiences and then the other, other audience was just like dead silent. And I'm laughing at like, you know, I, um, identical it's a, experience it's a movie about a guy who likes being poisoned with mushrooms it is an absurd comedy um with a sort of veneer of sort of prestige drama the fact that it got nominated for best picture still delights me to no end um you know and so that's sort of where we're at now of like yeah but it, it no longer has this sort of statement about america or statement about like the, the politics are there they're just mm-hmm. sort of bubbling under the surface alongside these sort of dense character dramas uh about people who are kind of messed up in some ways, but at least sort of, you know, I don't know, with, uh, you know, the, the, the relationship between Alana and Gary does not match this sort of uh, unique depravity of the, yeah, uh, but- the Reynolds Alma relationship, but you know, it's, there's, there's a, there's a kinship there. I've, I think I'm, I don't think I'm the first person to make that comparison. Certainly not the last. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to see what other people are saying. I'm interested. To, I just want to see the film 
again, I've been hoping and praying that we would get a screener of it. I don't think it's going to happen, but uh, at this point in the uh, NCFCA voting cycle, but um, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'll cut this bit out, but you know, I when I went home, there was a stack of MGM screeners for every everyone but that one. So I wouldn't be surprised if like you know in three weeks or something like that just shows up in the mail or something like that. That would be funny. I'll, I'll fly back to, to LA and then it'll show up. Right. Door. Right. No! But um, yeah. So uh, if you, if of these two films, if you have to go uh, see one of them, um, I think uh, uh, Licorice Pizza is the safer bet, but um, be prepared. It's a little, it's a little looser than you might be. Like if it's like family is, if you're like bringing the family along and you're like, they're like, I want to see a movie. Like just like, I don't know, warn them. Like, it's not like a totally like plot driven film, but like it's, it it's a be. teen comedy. I, exactly. I feel like if people just go in of like, I'm going to go see like a funny teen comedy. Like I, yeah. I, I feel like you will be, you will get what you are expecting is, is I exactly think, the, the great good. soundtrack. Everyone's oh wonderful God. in it. We, we don't have time, but like, and that almost kills me. Cause I, I couldn't get into it into my review, but like, the soundtrack in this movie is so good, and I've been bitching on this podcast all year long about people telling me that movies have great soundtracks, and it's the same 15 songs that we use over and over and over again. Yeah. And this soundtrack, they clearly spared no expense in terms of the artists they got, but it's it's songs that, like, I, with the exception of maybe the David Bowie song, like, songs I had yeah. never heard by these people. And I, I've just been like listening to that soundtrack nonstop, like driving to work and stuff. P- PTA brought back the deep cuts. I appreciate yeah. it. But and also even like the, there's like a little Johnny Greenwood track. It's great. Yeah. It's wonderful. Uh, it's a great movie. Um, I'm very excited to see it again. Um, I'm hoping that we've made our way through the discourse and survived it. And I never have to hear about that again. Um, but I'm excited for folks who, uh, you know, it's been playing on the coast for so long. I'm excited for everyone else to get a chance uh, who isn't, you know, in a critics group uh, to see it. Um, it's a it's a great film, one of my favorites of the year, alongside like I mentioned, French Dispatch, uh, and then both of the uh, the Hamaguchi films, Drive My Car and Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Those that's my my sort of top four at the moment. Um, we'll see if anything in the last few days strikes it off. But uh, just for context, this is one of the, one of the year's best. So yeah, see it. I would definitely agree. Well, Josh, thank you for, thank for stopping you so by for this me. week, and uh, for for listeners, like I said, next week we will probably have Chrissy Strauss on and we'll be talking Matrix, Spider-Man, probably the Adam McKay movie because I have a feeling a lot of people are going to fire that up this weekend. That'll be an interesting experience for you. I'm one of them. I'm one of them. Yeah. Two Uh, hours and 25 minutes. Woo! (laughs) Two hours and 25 minutes of uh, people lecturing me about climate change. Hey kids, do you like doom scrolling Twitter? Because you'll love the new Adam McKay movie. It's what I do all day anyways. We're all going to die. I just needed I needed celebrities to tell me it or else I wouldn't know. Can you like imagine? That, that's that's what like if I if I hadn't heard it from Leo and Jennifer Lawrence, like I wouldn't believe all the things I read on Twitter all day. Right. I'd be like, no, that can't be true. Let me go check uh, right wing Twitter. Ah, that's where the real those are the real people I believe. Oh wait, the celebrities told me it? These guys listen to them. Uh, anyway. Mm-hmm.